What an exciting time to be alive and to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Man, you know, so much of what we have um, talked about for a long time in churches about the end times, I believe we are actually walking into at this time. And what you are seeing unfold on the TV and on the internet is a reality that is taught in Scripture. You know, it's one of the ways that we know that Scripture is true because it foretells what will happen, and then those things happen. Amen? So uh, we're continuing our series called Signs today with this subtitle, We Are Seeking to Find Hope in God's Plan for the End Times. We, because we are followers of Jesus Christ, have the opportunity to see God's hand and be filled with confidence at this time. Not fear, not uncertainty that drives me back into a cave, but hope that drives me out into the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So um, it's starting to feel a little cooler outside, right? That's an awesome thing. Uh, I realize I'm violating some fashion code by wearing white pants after t- September 1st, right? No one cares about that? Good, I don't either. So um, anyway, cooler weather at our house means a fire in the fire pit in the backyard, a lot of coffee, and then when it gets a little cooler, a little darker earlier, it means a card table in the living room and for some puzzles to come out, right? Anybody got any puzzle workers in here when it gets really, really cold? You know, maybe when there's some snow on the ground and you pull out the puzzles and just get to work. So, you know, I like some puzzles. Not all the time. Maybe once a year is fine. One, one year, Heather and I picked up some puzzles that were, uh, they were mystery puzzles. I know every puzzle is a mystery. But these were like crime mystery puzzles. So you read this little mini booklet that came with the puzzle, and it told this story. And to solve the story, you had to put the puzzle together, and then there were clues in the puzzle that helped you know how to solve the whole story. So that was pretty cool, Dale. I like that. But I, I brought some this morning that we've had at our house, of course, because Taylor's in our has been at our house before, not now. She's married and has her own box of puzzles. Um, a Disney puzzle, of course, some Cinderella, 750 pieces. Uh, here's a Thomas Kincaid puzzle. And uh, hey, here's a Star Wars thousand-piece puzzle. I'm not so much on thousand-piece puzzles, but Star Wars I am on. So, And one of my favorite movies, of course, ever, Back to the Future. This is Back to the Future 2, pretty cool movie as well. Puzzle pieces, 500 pieces. They got little, you know, smaller puzzles. You can pick them up at the dollar store that are 50-piece puzzles, but the pieces are like... So you can get those. You can get all kind of puzzles. And I'm going to come back to these. I'm going to leave these right here for right now. But when you look at the end times, it can look like a puzzle. And there's so many pieces. You turn to the book of Revelation. You turn to the book of Daniel. You turn to the New Testament books, which, by the way, there's a lot written throughout the whole of Scripture about the end times, not just the book of Revelation. You find so many pieces, and you think, where in the world do all of these fit in? The thing that helps when you put together a puzzle is you get the picture on the front of the box. 
Without the picture on the front, you're pretty much in a bad spot. I've seen some puzzles that are like an, a blackout puzzle or an all red puzzle. There's no differentiation in color on the piece of the whole puzzle at all. It's just pieces. That sounds like a nightmare to me. To be able to have to put together pieces without a picture of where we're headed. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the end of the story picture. We have what is laid out for us in Scripture that helps us know where all of the pieces fit. And we have so far looked at some of the events of the end times. We've looked at the event called the rapture. We're calling the rapture, the time when the church is captured away from earth and returns home to be with Jesus because he said he had gone to prepare a place for us. There'll be a day he will come again to receive us to himself and then we will be with him. That is the rapture event. When that happens, the Holy Spirit's present upon the earth as we know it today will be removed because the Holy Spirit dwells where? In us. So if we are not here, he is not here in the same form anymore. With that gone, with the Spirit of God and the restraining force of holiness and righteousness and hope gone from the planet, man will do what he wants. Man will rage out in his own selfishness, his own immorality, his own brand of I will do what I want to do, and it will set into motion a series of chaotic events across the planet, a time the Bible calls the tribulation that will last for seven years. While that is happening on earth, there will be a time of reward for the church in heaven. Look at this graphic that we started with last week, and it will help us kind of put some things into place today as far as where we are. You think to our message title called The Return of Jesus Today. So let me show you this graphic. Here we are. We begin on the left with the rapture of the church, the event I just talked about. By the way, there are no other events necessary in God's timetable for the rapture to happen. It could happen this morning. It could happen at any time. The father could say to the son, son, go get your bride, and Jesus will come and we will be gone. Amen? I'm ready for that. That sets off a series of events that begins a seven-year period called the tribulation in which man does what he wants in all of his anger and wrath. At the same time, God will begin to pour out his justice upon the earth because during this time, it will be the height of evil upon the planet. Satan himself will fill a man who will become what the Bible describes as the Antichrist, the opposite of everything Jesus is. And filled with evil, he will arise to become the superpower on the earth, the seemingly answer for all things. All will turn to him. Even Israel will sign a treaty with him in hopes that he would protect and provide for them. He will turn against them. He will move into Jerusalem where the temple will be rebuilt. He will assert himself as supreme leader, even demand that all worship him. He will put himself in the place of God. He will institute a mark that the entire world will have to take on their hand or their forehead to be able to buy and sell. And all who do not will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. During this time, 
144,000 Jewish super evangelists will begin to move throughout the earth, sharing the gospel in greater clarity than perhaps has ever been witnessed. And many will come to faith during this tribulation time period. But those who do, most of all who do, will be killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the most horrific time that has ever existed on the planet. That seven-year period comes to an end with the return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus in physical form to planet Earth to reign upon the Earth. Nobody will pick their leaders anymore. There won't be any more elections because Jesus will institute himself as supreme ruler over all. Amen? I'm ready for that day. Now, here's the thing. We've got to put ourselves in this picture here somewhere because you and I have been raptured as the church. Those who remain on earth are under the tribulation. Many will die during that time. And as we come to the end of it, we find ourselves in the book of Revelation chapter 19. So go ahead and turn there. If you've got your Bible this morning, you've got your Bible app. Revelation 19 is where we are today. We are at the end of the tribulation period. Man has asserted himself, man has risen up, is rising up against God. There is war on the planet. The great Armageddon has been in place and things are heating up. It is horrific. There is disease on the planet. There is war. The great percentage of people on earth have died. The seas have been poisoned. The rivers have been poisoned. There's been earthquakes. And there's violent reaction on the earth. But our story today begins not on earth, but in heaven, in Revelation 19. Keep in mind that there are these two realms. There's heaven, and then there is earth. We start today in heaven, Revelation 19, verse 1. It says, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. In heaven, there is a massive worship service going on. The voices are crying out. And let me just give you a frame of reference here. Remember the one writing this? His name is John. He's on an island that is a prison island because of his preaching of the gospel. And while he is there, God has opened the portals of heaven for John to see. And John is writing furiously what he sees. And he says, in this moment, what I saw was a vast multitude in heaven. And they were all singing. They were all giving praise to God. They were saying that salvation, rescue belongs to him. Glory belongs to him. Honor belongs to him. All power belongs to him. This is all happening in heaven. When? At the exact same time that on earth, terrible things are happening. The earth is in its worst form during this moment, in its greatest tragedy on earth, people in heaven are worshiping. How in the world can that be? 
How can there be tragedy in one area and worship in another? How can the world be in its greatest chaos? How can Satan seem to be having his time? How can all of that happen when there's death and disease and chaos, yet in heaven they're worshiping? How can that be? Because they are seeing from heaven's perspective. When you see things from heaven's perspective, you can worship in the midst of your chaos. You can give praise to God in the midst of the difficulty. You can do what Connie and Jeff did as they described. In the midst of pain, you can still say, God is good. In the midst of uncertainty, you can still say, God is good. Because my worship is not dictated by my circumstances. My worship is dictated by my faith. Amen? Amen. So this is verse 1. There's this massive worship service happening here in heaven. Verse 2 says, For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Now this is a mystery. We could spend a long time just on this verse. But we have more to do today. So let me give you some highlights. It mentions a harlot an immoral woman, someone who is deceiving and leading others astray, someone who by her appearance and words is drawing others in. And whoever this harlot is has enraged the anger of God and judgment is coming upon her. This harlot is not the Antichrist, This harlot appears to be, from what I read in Scripture, and you can check it out in Revelation 17 as well, a description there. This harlot appears to be a version of what we see as church. A version in the end times that has a a look like church. It uses similar words like church. It talks about love and mercy and kindness. But this great harlot, the scripture says, ends up being drunk on persecuting and killing followers of Jesus. It doesn't like people who stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, follow him. This harlot doesn't mind soft faith. This harlot doesn't mind just saying, love everybody. But this harlot has no room when someone says, Jesus is the only way. This harlot won't allow anyone to say, Jesus alone is the way. And so she is the one who kills and destroys. And it says here in this verse that she has corrupted the earth with her fornication She leads others to a place where they think they are coming to faith. And John says, there's judgment coming for her. There's judgment coming for those who shed blood and deceive and lead astray. Verses 3 and 4, it says, 
John writes and says, these voices, they all said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down, worshiping God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen and Alleluia. They are worshiping because they know in the midst of the chaos on earth, there is a judge in heaven. There is one who will make all things right. There is one who will bring an end to every injustice. And this worship is going on with God on the throne, it says. But I love kind of how Revelation works here. Because John is writing all that he's seeing. And John is attempting to put heavenly visions into writing that you and I can understand, which is difficult to begin with. All of a sudden in verse 5, the scene changes. Things look a little different. I want you to look at verses 6 through 9 specifically. Let's start with 5. It says here that a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, those who fear him, both great or both small and great. Then in verse 6 it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings. There's all of a sudden a new sound in heaven. There's a new voice crying out, and they say, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, a couple of things I want us to notice here. It says they are crying out, and this is a vast, great multitude. This is a different number than the first group. This group is all of a sudden larger, and they've got the sound of many waters. It's loud. It sounds like mighty thunderings. It's really loud. I know some people come into vertical and say, it's really loud in here. Well, it's kind of a biblical thing. <laughs> if you need some earplugs, we got them at the door, but worship is intended to be all-encompassing, all around us and all from us. And this in heaven is massive in number. It's massive in sound. It sounds like storms. It sounds like rivers. It sounds like oceans. It is loud, and they are all saying the same thing. They are shouting Alleluia, and they are saying something very specific. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, I recognize Omnipotent is not one of those words that is in your daily vocabulary. It's not in mine either, unless I'm reading the book of Revelation. But we can break it down and understand what John was saying and what these, these people in heaven are saying. It breaks down into basically two parts, the word does. Omni, which means all the way around, encompassing, full, all, the whole thing. Potent. Omnipotent. You know the word potent. It's something that's strong something powerful, and they are saying, this God, he is all-powerful. Whoever is saying this at this point, they recognize God as being all-powerful over all things. 
He's more powerful than any trial. He's more powerful than any resistance. He's more powerful than sin. He's more powerful than death. He's more powerful than the grave. He's more powerful than any evil spirit. He's more powerful than Satan himself. Who is this? Who is saying this? Who is the one who's crying out with this kind of worship that would see God as the one who's powerful over all as though they had been through something that would make them say, We've been through it, and he delivered us. He is the one who's more powerful than all things. Who's saying it? Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Now, as we've talked about for the past several weeks, if you want to understand the end times, You've got to understand the power of the Jewish, specifically the Galilean wedding. It's not like our weddings today. The groom would come and, in effect, propose to the wife-to-be. They would sign a covenant or initiate a covenant on that day that was done so by a cup of wine that he offered to her. And when she received this cup of wine, their covenant was sealed on that day. And then they were considered married. But he would leave and go to prepare a place for her back at his father's house. And she would make preparations for the day he would return, not knowing when that would be. But on that day, she was to be ready. She was to be dressed. She was to be prepared. And when the son had made everything ready at his father's house, And the father said to him, son, go get your bride. The son would then leave. By the way, no one knew that day except the father. The father would tell the son, and the son would leave and go get his bride. She would be picked up and carried back to the father's house. That is you and I, raptured, returned to heaven, And in that period, while earth, hell is breaking loose, you and I as the church will be in heaven preparing for a wedding. And here in Revelation 19, that day has come. Mm. The day that the bride of Christ, the church, made up of all of those who have put their faith in Jesus since the time of his resurrection... Everyone from every tribe, every nation, every tongue will then be gathered together before him. And there will be the grandest wedding celebration to have ever occurred. Because the church will then experience final and complete oneness with Jesus. And this is what's happening so who is, the, who is the group singing? Who is it that says, God is all-powerful? I believe it is the church. It is us singing. We are the one that captures heaven's attention as we all approach our groom to be one with him. And we are singing in alleluia and in worship and in adoration because he has shown himself all power. Look in verse 8. It says there, and to her, 
That's us. It was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Here on this day, in heaven, just like you and I know, a bride enters a room in a white dress. You, you know that concept came from Scripture, right? It came from right here. The bride enters in in a dress provided for her by the groom. And she is granted. She is gifted. She is graced with the ability to wear this fine linen. Not because she deserves it. Not because she's been oh so perfect in all of her past but because she has been sacrificed for by the groom, because he has, by grace, forgiven her her sins, washed her and made her clean and pure. Now she stands before her groom in complete humility and joy for this moment. It says that this fine linen is, is the righteous acts of the saints. It's the things that you and I have done by faith. It's every time you prayed when it was so hard to pray and it was so dark in the night. It was every time that you chose to give to someone out of faith when it even didn't make sense financially to do so. It's every time you were kind to someone who is in desperate need of someone to show them some mercy and grace. It says here the church, every believer is covered in all of the righteous things they've done, not because of their goodness, but because he put it on their heart, and then we are wearing it in great beauty. It goes on in verse 9. It says, then he said to me, this, this angel said to John, I want you to write this, John. Make sure you write this. I know you're writing some things, but here's something I want you to get this down. Blessed are those who were called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. He says, this is what every saint has longed for. This is what you have prayed for. I want you to hear me this morning. I know in every one of our lives, there are things that you have longed for and are still longing for today. There are things that you are praying for that have not yet come to pass. There are desires in your heart that no one on earth has been able to fulfill. Every longing in your heart to be completely known and understood and heard and deeply loved and completely accepted and fully forgiven to be fully restored to have hope and to find ultimate release in your soul every longing that you have like that today that has not been met by a spouse a child, a job, a career, a pastime will be fulfilled in this moment because we will meet 
the lover of our souls, the one who created us, the one who filled us, the one who gave you that very longing, it will be met in this moment. You know it's frustrating to look for that in someone on earth, right? It's okay to nod your head. Your spouse is feeling the exact same way. Yeah, right? You know it's impossible for someone to fulfill and fill every one of your expectations and longings. You know that can't happen here on earth. And yes, by faith we believe in Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within us and there are still things that we say, God, when? God, how long? God, I just, there's something I long for still. He knows. And this day will be the day that it's fulfilled. You and I are uniquely tied to this day. You and I don't live our lives for just what's in this life, just what's in our 80 plus years, whatever they might be. You and I don't live just for that. You and I live for a day when Jesus will see us face to face and in all of his gracious rewards to us, we will be linked to him in great intimacy and there every longing will be fulfilled and not until that day. It's a beautiful, powerful moment in heaven. And you can see why John says, I got to get this down. Blessed are those who were called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as it is with John, about the time he gets one epic moment written down, another epic moment begins. And that's what happens. We go on in verses 11 through 16, and the pace changes. The scene changes. Verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. John says, just about the time I took in this great marriage feast happening, all of a sudden, heaven opened up. And you got to remember, John's writing it from heaven's perspective. And he says, he sees heaven open up. It's like a, a portal opens up. And he says, when it does, a white horse. And he says, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. What on earth is happening? We were just at a great marriage feast. Heaven opens up. A horse shows up. There's a rider on the horse, and he's not coming with shouts of, Hi, everybody. Good to see you. He's not in uh, an Ovilla Heritage Day parade doing this. It says, no, he's come and he's called faithful and he's called true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. This is our Lord Jesus. Now, I know people have a hard time seeing Jesus in this way. There's a, there's a pull on earth today to only see Jesus as this meek, mild, 
never lifts his voice, never raises a hand, always kind, always loving. Our Jesus is that. But he is also holy, righteous, and determined that God receive all glory and that truth always prevails. And for that to happen at this time, when on earth is raging the greatest war ever seen on the planet, Jesus gets on a horse, not a donkey, a horse of war, and he gets on and heaven opens and he strikes out to be judge. And where is he going? He's coming to planet Earth. I told you the scene was going to change. Yes, Jesus is gracious, full of grace, but he's also full of truth. When Jesus met the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and thrown on the ground by a group of men, he showed great compassion to her. But he also turned to those same men who were full of self-righteousness and hate, and he was blatantly truthful, insultingly honest with them in that moment, so insulting that they dropped their rocks and walked away in disgrace. Yes, Jesus is kind. Yes, Jesus is merciful for those who come by grace or by humility to him for grace. But for those who stand in arrogant resistance, Jesus is also, as this passage says, faithful. Jesus will always protect the weak. Jesus will always protect his own. He is a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of the weak. And he will defend those that are persecuted. Jesus is also true. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his spirit within us. He cannot go against his father's commands. And he cannot go against who we are in him. He will be faithful. He will be true. For every promise that you have believed and have yet to see the answer, he will be faithful. For every moment you have acted in faith and obeyed him, not knowing what was going to happen next, he is true. Jesus is also, as this passage says, righteous. His character is based on the holiness of God and in righteousness. He always does what is right. He always sees that righteousness prevails. He always sees that the righteous are not forsaken. It may not happen in the time we thought, but he will always see that righteousness prevails. So that deed that you've done in faith, righteously, and you're waiting to see what will happen, he will be true, he will be faithful, he will be righteous. But this passage also tells us, or this verse tells us, he is also a judge. Jesus has all truth, and he is the one who sits in the seat as judge. And rest assured, no one, no one gets away with sin. 
your sin is either paid for at the cross, accepted by you for forgiveness, in which case it is wiped away, or if you refuse the cross, that sin still must be judged. It must be paid for. No one gets away with their sin. I know it looks like it today sometimes. I know we watch events and we watch people and we think, how can they get away with that? How can that keep happening? How come they can't be caught? Let me assure you, no criminal ever gets away with it. They may appear to get away with it here, but they will not get away with it there. No political figure ever gets away with it when they lie, steal, and cheat. No Hollywood elite will get away with their immorality and deception. There will be a day of payment. The judge will come. He doesn't come in tenderly the second time. He comes as a righteous ruling judge. Every injustice will be exposed in that day. Every wrong will be righted. Every deception will be revealed. And every offender and every offense will be judged. This verse also says that he comes to make war. This may be hard for you to take in, that this is Jesus. But it should bring you great comfort. It should bring you comfort that there's grace and mercy for your sin and for all who call upon him. But it should also bring great comfort to you to know he will make right every wrong. Everything you have suffered at the hands of someone else unjustly, unfairly, he will make right. Now, specifically, Jesus is returning to earth because on earth things are totally out of control. There is war. The Antichrist has risen up. He is raging war. The nations are rising against him. And Jesus is about to appear on the scene at the end of this tribulation period. And he'll bring an end to the war. And Jesus isn't going to bring some new super technology. He isn't going to bring the latest in wartime weaponry. In fact, in the verse we read last week, that this, this lawless one will be revealed, and then Jesus will come, and he'll actually consume him, the Bible says, by the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. All he's got to do is walk into the room, speak his truth, and the enemy comes to an end. Amen? Here's what it says in verse 12. It says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. So John is kind of taken back like, oh, there's this horse, and it's, it's raging. It's raging toward earth. And John says, I can see in his eyes that there's a flame of fire. He is really, he's lit up. He's, he's got vengeance on his mind. 
He's not coming as a soft savior this time. He's coming as a warrior this time. He's got fire in his eyes and he's wearing crowns. He's wearing the crowns of a king. He's wearing the crowns of a judge. He's wearing the crowns of a conqueror. And then in this curious part of verse 12, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And you're probably thinking, what is that name? Are you going to tell us that name? Do you know that name? It says, no one knows it. Not even me. We don't know it. It's a mystery. Here's what I do know. In that day, there'll be a group of people who will know that name and speak that name. It'll be us. There'll be a new name that we will know Jesus by. I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. He has reserved it for that day for you and I alone to be able to give him and relate to him with. He's coming in war, it says. Verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is where we clearly know that this is Jesus. This is where we clearly know that he's the one riding the horse, but what's interesting is he's, he's dressed in pure white linen, but he's got a robe that's dipped in blood. Seems a little off-putting at first. Why so gross? Why so eh? Why blood at the bottom? It's not fancy name for red trim. This blood, I believe, is the blood of martyrs who during the tribulation period have lost their life. They were unfairly treated, unjustly treated, cruelly beaten, savagely killed. And Jesus now rides back onto the scene on planet Earth to say, I've been taking names, and I'm here to exact some justice on those who have brought suffering on my own, and I'll wear their pain as part of my coming. Jesus rides into the scene here. It's a moment of justice. It's a moment of war. It's a moment where he says, I am the word of God. I am every promise. I am every truth. I am every moment of faithfulness. I am every command. I'm coming back to fulfill all that has been declared. But the scripture says he's not coming alone. Verse 14 says, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who? Who is this? Who is this group that's coming with him? We've already seen the description. You know who it is. Who else have we just seen was clothed in white linen? The church. Who else was dressed in white linen? The bride. This is us coming back with him. And we're riding some white horses too. We're coming back as the armies of heaven with the angels. And we're coming with him to exact some justice. I'm in for that, eh? Yeah? Woo! It's a, it's a grace. It's a gift. You and I called to rule and reign with him? Wow. 
First he redeems us. First he rescues us. Then he clothes us and he calls us his own. Then he makes us part of himself and then he graces us with, with his inheritance. And then he puts us on horses and gives us inheritance. Then he gives us marching orders and says, let's go. We got some work to do. And he heads straight down to planet earth. And we do too. It's time to do some work. You get on in verse 15, and it says, Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. I love that. Didn't list any other weapons. Only his voice. Only him speaking. The only thing you need to conquer the evil in the temptations that come your way, that Satan wants to bring your way, is God's word, just like Connie said. All you need is a word of truth to silence every voice, bring it into them, and here Jesus speaks, and it's like a sharp sword against the nations. Then he uses a word picture that you and I might not be as familiar with, but the people in his day were. John writes, and he said, And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. John uses a picture of a winepress. Winepress was a a stone area where someone either used a large stone to roll over the grapes to crush them and produce the juice, or you walked in it with your bare feet as you have seen in pictures and video, and all of the grapes were crushed, every one of them, and you kept crushing until all of the juice was removed from all of the grapes, and you just kept moving. By it being your feet, you could feel whether or not it was fully extracted, and you just kept on going until every bit of the juices were removed, until only just pulp remained, until all of the juice was pressed out, And this verse says that Jesus himself, as he comes back now, he comes back having tread the wine presses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. In other words, Jesus has been there and he's been aware of every injustice on earth. And for every injustice, it's like a a bunch of grapes were put into the wine press. And Jesus treaded it out. He kept stepping on it. He kept squeezing it out, waiting for the day when he would come and exact justice upon the planet. For every offense, he would come. He would bring justice. For every unborn child that lost his life through the murder of abortion, on this day, justice comes. For every child abducted, abused, and use for the evil of man, justice will be meted out. For every woman who has been taken advantage of by someone else, justice will come. For every victim who has suffered at the hands of a criminal, a murderer, a rapist, justice will be doled out on this day. For every believer who suffered At the hands of those who hate Christ, justice will come. 
For every loss you and I have experienced on this sin-soaked planet, for everything you've waited for and wondered, why did this happen to me? Why was I treated that way? God, where were you? Why did that have to happen? Why did death have to come so soon? Why was I treated like that? Didn't anyone see? Didn't anyone know? Why did I walk through this pain? Because there's coming a day when Jesus will take every one of those injustices and he will tread the wine press of the fierce wrath of God and he will be the one who comes back to make all things right. Amen. Your pain and your suffering in this life, it hurts. I know. I know when you're treated unfairly, when people say things against you falsely, when that event happened that in the normal course of events should not have happened, when the rejection came, when the marriage situation didn't work out, when the child died too soon, when the evil temptation came and it destroyed that family member, that friend. Every evil and wrong will be judged in this day. Your wrongs and injustices that you've experienced are uniquely tied to this day. Because in this day, if it hasn't been paid for by the cross, it'll be paid for by the wrath of a furious king who comes to bring justice. That is why you and I wait for a day like this by faith. In this life, you may not most likely will not see every injustice righted or every desire fulfilled. But what you will see is a day like this when Jesus makes all things right. Verse 16, we finish. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who's this one who's doing all of this? It's Jesus. He's the king. He's the king over all kings, and he's the Lord over all lords. Now, I come back to puzzle pieces at this point. The end times can feel like a puzzle, but life feels like a puzzle sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes life feels like this uh, crazy box of pieces that I can't figure out all of the parts. I don't even know where it all goes. It just... It just doesn't make sense sometimes. And it's all thousand piece Star Wars puzzle piece. You know, if there's one thing that's frustrating about a, a puzzle box is if one piece gets missing. Anybody want to take this one home and work it now? <laughs> How about now? Anybody want to take this box home still? How about my favorite? Even better. How about some uh, Back to the Future? Man, I really hate to see all that happen. How about some Thomas Kincaid? 
Mm, it's beautiful. The painter of light. Just uh, mix. Yeah, I didn't get enough of those in there and there. I mean, put all that together. What have I got? Oh, Cinderella, of course. Who wants to mess up that story a little bit? Here we go. Yeah, it's terrible. It's just terrible. There's a mess here. Let's try and get some of this put back in here. Awesome. You might want to work some puzzles now. All right. I need some guys to come help me real quick. Take these. Pass them out quickly. Let's get them out. I want you to take one of these baskets when they come your way, and I want you to reach in and get a handful of puzzle pieces. Come on. Let's get all of these moving here. Pass them down the rows. Woo. Let me do one here, here. Great. I got one more. Somebody needs some puzzle pieces. I got a big, healthy box here. Anybody else got another? Can I get this one going somewhere? Everybody take some puzzle pieces. And, man, there's still some up here on the stage. It's a mess. I want you to get you a big old handful. Don't get one. Get you a big old handful of puzzle pieces. I want you to, I want you to feel those. I want you to have them all in your hands. I want you to feel the weight of puzzle pieces. Puzzle pieces that don't match. Puzzle pieces that don't go together. Different shapes, different colors. Grab you a handful and keep it going. Don't miss any of those. Grab you a bunch. I know what you're doing. You're all trying to make sense of all those, aren't you? Which one was from the Star Wars? Which one's from Back to the Future? Where's Cinderella? Is R2-D2 on one of these? Is this one of those shiny ones from Thomas Kincaid? I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to make sense of them all. It's a good thing. Get those all passed out. Grab you a big old handful. Mm. Everybody get one. Everybody got a piece? Awesome. Now, you know, you're probably thinking in the back of your mind, is he about to pull off some great cool thing where he put all the puzzle pieces together and makes a great cool puzzle? No, I'm not. You can't solve all of the matters of life in this life. You got puzzle pieces in your hand right now that match your life. Stuff that has been painful, stuff that's been unanswered. You don't know where it fits. You don't know how it all goes together. You don't know what's going to come of it. We do. There'll be a day when Jesus returns, coming out of heaven, and having been married to him as a bride, every longing you and I have now will be fulfilled in that day. And every injustice that we wait to see right made, you will see it in that day. Then and only then will your puzzle pieces fit. Hold on to those. Keep them somewhere. Put them in a baggie when you get home. Write on it Revelation 19. And on those days when you start wondering what is going on, pick up that bag. Read this chapter. Remember, oh, there's coming a day. There's coming a day of hope. There's coming a day of justice. There's coming a day that the king will return. He'll come in physical form. And when he does, he will rule on this planet. Here's your teaser for next week. Jesus comes back and he rules for a thousand years on earth. Next week, we're going to look at what that thousand years is like. But today, I'd ask you to bow your heads as we close. I know in the room... There are longings, there's hopes, there's dreams, there's questions. They can't ever be fulfilled in this life, by this life, or by another person. But they will be fulfilled the day 
that Jesus gloriously returns. I would ask you the question, how do you know him today? Do you know him as Lord? Do you know him as king of your life? Do you know him as the one who determines every part of your life? Have you received his grace and are you walking in that? Or is he a distant piece of life? He knows your puzzle. And he invites you, while it's still called today, to come to him. It might be that today you've never cried out to the Lord, and today for the first time you do. I'd encourage you to pray something like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. I've lived my life apart from your love. Thank you for dying for my sins and making it possible for me to be forgiven. I receive that love today. And I'll now walk with you as the King and Lord of my life. It might be that as a believer, you had lost hope. You got stuck trying to figure it all out in this life, and today you realized that's all meant for that day. Father, I thank you that as believers we can trust you at all times, that our faith is the victory, and we long for the day when you will return. And in that day, we will be your glorious bride, made whole, washed, dressed in what you've provided. But we also come as warriors, riding with you to bring your kingdom to bear. I thank you for grace and truth that's in you. We will now live in the light of that and face what is ahead with the hope of that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.